Oh, Father, we, we come now to your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is that which God is, is the key instrument for our sanctification. As Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Oh, God, we know that a natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Oh, God, but we know that uh, spiritual men, people, women, children are able to understand your word. And as we come here to Romans 6, a, a difficult uh, just passage with just theological concepts of thinking about um, just our, our life and our sanctification, oh God, I pray that you would make things abundantly clear. I pray that you would uh, just even help me now uh, in this process. God, just uh, open it and deliver your word. We pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Is, uh, we're, we're picking up our verse-by-verse exposition through Romans. Uh, we started last fall, and we are coming here uh, again to finish up chapter 6, Lord willing, today. And I think we will finish it. We're looking at the last four verses, verses 20 through 23. If you uh, forgot your Bible, you can uh, get a pew Bible in front of you, like I forgot my book here. Um, so I, I need this today. Uh, page 943 is, is where that is. And um, so, as you're turning there, I want you to tell you of a, of a little book that I have on my shelf. It's but, whatever, 100 pages. It's written by Douglas Wilson. Uh, he's a tremendous writer. And the, and the book is called Persuasions. Uh, subtitle, A Dream of Reason, Meeting Unbelief. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a book compiled of several fictional conversations and um, a conversations between a man named Evangelist and with various unbelievers along the way. And uh, throughout all these conversations, Evangelist seeks to persuade these people, all of whom have a, have a different view and are walking the opposite way of him, to believe in Jesus. And what he does is he really addresses the, the differences of their, their worldview. And it's really a fascinating book because it's simple on the one hand, it's only 100 pages. It's real, real big. It'd be good to read at family worship for you. That would be a, a, good, a good thing you can pick up, persuasions. I'm going to read from it about four or five times just to kind of highlight it and kind of give you a flavor because it illustrates our, our text uh, really well. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating book because it's so simple, but yet it's so profound as it gets down to the, the heart, deep issue about those who are dealing with uh, different worldviews. So I want to read here from the, from the one-page introduction. I'm just going to move this aside here. It says, There was only one road in that region, but like all roads, it ran in two directions. In one direction, it ran eastwards, up a gradual incline, and ended at the city. In the other, the end of the road was the abyss. In some places, the two destinations were obvious. In others, where the road wound down through some canyons and in the badlands, the truth was less obvious. Still, it was impossible for anyone to travel for any length of time on the road without coming to some realization of his basic direction. Nevertheless, those who were headed to the abyss were also headed downhill and preferred that to the strenuous alternative. There were many who therefore chose to ignore the unpleasant truth. The master of the city had posted road signs warning of the danger, but road signs could be ignored as well. 
The master, therefore, instructed his servants who were on their way to his city to do the best to persuade those travelers to reverse direction. Some of them, discovering the master had given them some ability in this, became quite effective in the endeavor. And this is the story of one individual. As he traveled to the city, he encountered many who wanted to go the other way for many reasons. And from long experience, he found himself answering them according to their particular objections. And I've gathered here some of the conversations in hope that others who are traveling to the city may make some use of them. So that's how, how he introduces the book. And it, it's sort of like a, a Pilgrim's Progress sort of thing, right? Where Pilgrim's Progress, evangelist comes on the scene and he, he talks and directs. But, th- but this one, you, you've got basically just, just, just one road. And evangelists are walking one way and the other people are walking the other. And he's trying to persuade and trying to persuade. And along the way, he, he has about 15 different conversations. One with a hedonist who is pursuing his own pleasure. One with people having marriage problems and and marriage difficulties. And all they've sought is secular wisdom rather than the wisdom of the gospel for their marriage. Others include conversation with a feminist and an agnostic and a, a liberal minister and a scientist and a new ager and an evolutionist and even a highly religious man. And uh, it's really a helpful book to, to see how evangelists takes each of these worldviews and how, how he seeks to, seeks to get down to the heart of what they're thinking about and seeks to persuade them in the way. Now, one of the things that... Uh, there's the book. There should be a book up there. Is there? There? Okay. Now, one of the things that I love about the book is, is the simple picture that Douglas Wilson gives here. It's a simple picture of traveling up the road to the city or traveling down the road to the abyss. And, and, and it's, it's, it's like people are crossing. There's, there's conversations going on like, like all the time about walking in the way. But one thing is clear that they're walking one direction or another. It's my title my message this morning is the path of life. And, and this is life. There's a picture of life for you. So one road. One leads to the city of Jerusalem. And one leads down to the abyss. And, and all of you, wherever you are, you're on this road someplace. You're walking along that road, and you might be walking uphill, going against the grain of society, walking what's hard, or you might be walking downhill, ignoring the signs along the way, ignoring the counsel of those who are telling you to turn around and go the other way. There aren't option, other options, right? And this, this metaphor here of the of life, there aren't, aren't options. There's not another road. It's either up the path or, or down the path. And really the call, the text, is to see all of us, right, walking up that path. Now, in our text, Romans 6, 20 to 23, we're going to see Paul writing to the Romans and reflecting upon their, their journey on this road. And it, at one point, he reminds them, you all, we're walking on that road to the abyss. But you encountered a man like evangelist. And you heard him speak, and you heard the gospel about Jesus Christ, about him who was descended from David according to the flesh, and him who was sacrificed on the cross for our sins, and him who was raised from the dead with power by the resurrection of the dead. And they were persuaded, these Romans were persuaded, and they turned around. And they were heading up the path of life, walking in the obedience of faith. And, and Paul was affirming them. In fact, even before our text, look in chapter 6, verse 17. He says, but thanks be to God that you, Romans, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Right there it is. You used to be slaves of sin, walking downward along the path of life, which actually the path of death if you're going the wrong way, but along this, along this path, you were walking that way, the Romans. But now he says you become obedient from the heart. And you've been set free from sin and you've turned around and now you're walking this path of life in the upward direction, up towards life. And these words are really a practical parallel of our text this morning. Romans 6, 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in these verses, Paul's like going back and forth, back and forth. He, he, he talks about those in Rome of how they used to live, but now how they're living. He, he, he talked about how they used to be slaves of sin, but now they are free from sin, and now they're, they're slaves of God. He, he talks about the, the fruit and the results of their lives, and, and what sort of things are your life producing, and what sort of ends you have. And he's kind of going back and forth, back and forth. But simply put, Paul's just saying this, he used to go, be going down the abyss where destruction awaits, but now you're going up to the city where eternal hope and eternal life is yours. I have two points this morning. I want to put them both out there for you. The downward walk. And the upward walk. Now you can see how it goes back and forth. The, the downward walk is in 20 and 21 and half of 23. And the upward walk is in 22 and half of 23 as well. So we're going we're gonna to begin here this morning with the downward walk. Paul says this, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now Paul brings the Romans back to the time before they believed the gospel he told them that they were slaves, slaves to their own lusts, slaves to their own passions, slaves to their own desires. And being slaves of sin, Paul said that they were free in regard to righteousness. That is, they, they felt no obligation to righteousness, no obligation to righteous living. And maybe you know people like this. There's, there's no church in their life. There's no religion there's really no moral code of, of any kind, simply living for themselves without concern of anything supernatural. They're, they're, they're naturalists, right? evolutionists. They just think what here is, is here and now, and they sift things through the grid of whatever is best for them right now at the moment, and that's how, how they live. You know people like that? <laughs> I know lots of people like that. They just don't, don't take any account into uh, the realm of, of God. Or spiritual realm. They just live for themselves. They live for their own pleasure. Now, Paul already mentioned this back in Romans chapter 3 and verse 18 when he sums up the sin of mankind. One of the things he talks about is the, how sinful they are. No one righteous, no not one, none who understands. And he concludes that, verse 18, quoting from the Old Testament, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And how many people live with no fear of the Lord before their eyes. They live for themselves without any view for eternity. Simply are here to enjoy things in the here and now. It reminds me of the conversation that, that evangelist had with, with Randy. 
who believe that life is all about pleasure. Let me just read you a little bit. I can't read this whole book. I would love to, but I don't. Well, we're going to read a little excerpt that Evangelist has with Randy. And Randy begins by, we're in the middle of a conversation, he's scolding Evangelist. He says, Look, you religious types are all alike. You look down your noses at people having a good time, and you're envious. You wish you could get a little action, but you can't because of all your rules. So you cram your rules down our throats. Evangelist smiled and slowly shook his head. He said, I will not defend the rules. They are not mine to defend. They are God's. He will apply and defend them adequately enough. As to your accusation of envy, I have only one thing to say. If I see a 400-pound man on the street, I do not envy him the additional pleasure that he had at the dinner table nor do I envy your time in bed. Randy stepped back several paces, looking confused. He was not getting the best of the exchange, and he was not sure why. He usually got a good deal of fun with Christians. But Randy's laughter was increasingly nervous, and he had a hunted expression. He said, I just couldn't live like you do. I, I want to spend my time around pretty women. This time it was Evangelist's turn to laugh but there was no mockery in it, then why do you spend time with women who are not beautiful? My wife, Compassion, is a beautiful woman, and her beauty begins on the inside. I've never been ashamed of her. I would be very ashamed indeed to be involved with a woman who is willing to be used as a thing. And by this time, Randy looked very uncomfortable. He was looking at the ground, and he started to move away. I really need to be going, he said. Evangelist put a gentle hand on his arm. Wait, before you go, may I ask you a question? Go ahead. You have a habit, and that habit has enslaved you to your lusts. So much is understandable, but why do you boast in the vice? Randy looked at Evangelist for a moment. He was obviously thinking hard. If I come back here later, will you be here? If God is willing. You say that I'm a slave. Do you know how slaves are set free? I do. I need some time to think. I may be back. And with that, Randy turned and slowly resumed his walk down the road. It was clear that for the first time in many years... A completely different kind of desire had come over him. And, and there's, there's typical of someone who lives only for himself. He's sinning. He thinks it's wonderful. He thinks it's great. And he doesn't realize that he is a slave to sin. But that, that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in verse 20, right? Before people come to Christ, people are enslaved in their passions. And, and in verse 21, Paul just says, okay, so what, what are you getting from it? What's the fruit of that? Look at verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. In other words, Paul is, is bringing the Romans back to their pre-conversion day. When, when sin was on the table, no real concern for righteousness. And uh, he said, okay, so, so now that you've you come to Christ, why don't you look back and reflect upon your life? What did what, you get? What was your fruit? What, what, what was the outcome? And the, ounce, the outcome, he, he says, is shame. What fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you're now ashamed, right? You're just ashamed of those things. Because that's what sin brings. Sin brings shame. It brings disappointment. It brings regret. And all of us who've who've come to know Christ know what Paul's talking about. We can think about our, our past life and just fill our minds with shame. Right? Shame to the things you used to do. Ashamed of the drugs you used to take, or the drunken binges you used to, to have, or the stupid you, things you did under the influence. You're ashamed of the way you cheated the way through school or, or wronged a girlfriend. 
you're ashamed at things you used to see on the screen or at what you searched for Googled or what you Googled for or the things you used to sing or the things you used to say or the way you treated your children or others, abusing them just in all sorts of ways. It's always the result of sin. Oh, it may be pleasurable for the moment. That's why sin takes place in the first place, right? Because we, we think it's pleasurable, but, but it always brings long-term regret. Think about Adam and Eve. You think they ever regretted eating that fruit? Shame that they did. I'm sure they did. You think David ever regretted his sin with Bathsheba? Or Peter denying Christ three times in the night in which he is betrayed? Yes, yes, yes. I'm sure that's all shame and regret. That's what sin does. How many people are in prison today regretting that night that they, whatever, armed robbery or killed somebody or, or whatever? Just like, oh, if only I could have that back rather than rotting here for the rest of my life. It's what sin does. And, and realize, right, that, that, that the things you're tempted to do today will ultimately lead in your shame and regret. So think about that because that's a good way to fight the fight of faith. In fact, beyond shame, well, here we are, beyond shame, it's going to lead to your death. And, and that's what verse 21 speaks about. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. That's where sin brings. Sin leads us to death. It leads us to the abyss. That's what Romans Chapter 6, verse 23 says, right? The wages of sin is death. It's a consequence of sin. And, and so I want to bring you another illustration here. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's uh, just different people. Okay, I, I missed one. Okay, that, that was the other guy. I just kind of brought up some faces just to try, to try to bring some faces. This guy's named Robert, and, and he's, he's one who just um, kind of, Wants to talk in questions, right? And uh, try to intellectually get things out of the way. But he was concerned about this whole idea of a sin and condemnation. And how is it really fair that people are condemned to death? Listen to Evangelist's conversation with Robert. Okay, this is not really who it was, but you'll, you'll kind of see him. So I was tired, so I found a comfortable shaded place under a nearby tree and took a short nap. And when I awoke, I discovered that Evangelist was in a conversation with four boisterous young men... And the conversation had apparently been going on for a while, but it was not hard to pick up on the character of the exchange. Well, what about the people in Africa who've never heard of God? What happens to them? The speaker was a large fellow and slightly overweight. His companions hooted at the point that he, they thought he scored. Evangelist replied, people do not receive condemnation because they haven't heard. They are condemned already. Evangelist's adversary pointed a finger, and, and what's that supposed to mean? It means that hearing the message is the solution to the problem. The problem is sin. Not everyone has heard the Christian message, but everyone sins. Did you mean to say that everyone is condemned? Yes. And those who die without Christ are people who do not know of the solution to their problem, but they are very aware of their problem. Sin is to the human race what water is to a fish. At this statement, the young man began to gesture in an agitated manner, and all of them began talking at once until their leader, whose name was Robert, managed to drown them out. How is this supposed to solve the problem? Aren't they still condemned? Yes, but they are not condemned for what they did not know. They are condemned for their failure to live up to what they did know. And the only solution for that state of condemnation is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. Suppose for a moment you had developed a cure for cancer. 
You took it into a cancer ward and you gave it away to half of the patients. What would happen to the patients who did not receive the gift? I suppose they would die. Is that your answer? Exactly right. Now, what would they die of? They would die of cancer. That's also correct. They would not die of, quote, not taking the medicine. Their refusal to take the medicine affects whether they die, but it is not the cause of death. It is the disease which kills, and in the case of the human race, the disease is sin. And one of the young men apparently decided it was time to change the subject. Well, that's just your interpretation. And kind of he goes on and he, he deals with that, talking about biblical interpretation. But, but here's the idea of how people are condemned in their sin because sin brings death. And conversations can go all around and around and around, but there is the reality is that sin brings shame, sin brings death. That's the fruit. We already saw that in Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Adam sinned. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In and of ourselves, right, we're, we're helpless to escape. We're all under that condemnation. But, but thanks be to God, there's another way along the path of life. It's, it's not the downward walk into the abyss. It's the upward walk to the city. This is our second point, right? The upward walk. To the city. Again, verse 23. I'm going to go to verse 23 and then we're going to end in verse 22 because I, I want to I catch this whole idea about the wages of sin is death, as Paul says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 23 is the, my message in summary, right? Sin leads to death, but the gift of Christ is life. The downward walk leads to the abyss, but the upward walk leads to the city. And, and there you see it in verse 23. But one of the things that comes in verse 23 is the, the flavor of the walk. Because from what I've been saying, you, you, you might get the sense that, oh, I just need to walk in a, in a righteous way rather than walking in a wicked way. right? I just need to, to keep the commands. Well, in some regards that's true. In some regards it's not. But, but notice the difference in verse 23. It doesn't say the wages of sin is death. But the wages of righteousness is eternal life. He doesn't talk like that. He says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? See, there's a, there's a difference between wages and gifts. Right? Wages are, are what is due, and the gift is what is, is given. Now, it is true that the wages of righteousness is eternal life. The problem is we can't ever sufficiently satisfy the righteous requirement. And, and that's what, that's what uh, John talks about, um, just about this, this idea of a gift and grace and how that works. Again, we pick up the conversation midstream, but it illustrates the point very well. Evangelist took out a small black Bible and he opened it up. And he began to turn pages slowly, carefully reading a list of requirements he was very quiet and methodical. He said, do not commit adultery. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do not murder. Anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And this went on for about ten minutes. And as he spoke, he looked very industrious, like a man loading a truck. During this time, John was looking increasingly distressed. His earlier confident attitude was fading, like he was talking about, oh, I can, just, I can just do what God says, I can keep the commandments, and now he was exposing the commandments and he was fading. He looked like he was under some kind of heavy weight. Well, my teacher didn't explain it that way to me. He said that if I was sincere and that if I did more good than bad, I'd be accepted. 
Uh, did he quote to you that passage that says, faith without works is dead? Yes, that's, that's the passage. That's where he started. And the evangelist said, but in that same place, the author says that anyone who breaks the law, just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. To break one law is to break all laws. How's that? And this, this is where the book is so powerful because these illustrations come. Many think that the law of God is like a frame full of small window panes. They think that if you can get through life without breaking most of them, it'll be all right. That's right, isn't it? After all, there are commandments I haven't broken. No, I'm afraid not. This passage indicates that the law of God is more like one large plate glass window. And it doesn't matter if the hole is in the upper left-hand corner, in the lower right-hand corner, or right in the middle, the window is still broken. And there's a panic look in John's eyes, and his shoulders were stooped, and he was breathing with some difficulty. And Evangelist stepped back. Now, you're all set. When you get to the city, you will have to prove to them that you have kept all these requirements, and then they will receive you gladly. Well, this isn't realistic, John moaned. Do you expect me to crawl there on my knees? I can't keep all these requirements. But these requirements are in the Bible, just like the ones you mentioned earlier. You have little time to waste. You better get started. At this, evangelist stood aside to let John continue his journey. He started to walk off at a snail's pace, still towards the abyss. And a moment later, he turned back. Nobody can do this. Evangelist nodded. That is correct. You're telling me the city will be empty because no one will be there, right? Because no one can do it. No, that's not right. The city will be full. John shook his head. You're not making sense to me. How can a city be full when men can't get into it? What a man cannot do may still be done for him. Isn't that grace? What a man cannot do may still be done for him. And that's Romans 6.23, right? The wages in his death, but the free gift of God's eternal life that Jesus did for us that we could never do for ourselves. And John shook his head again, just what I needed, a guide who talks in riddles. And then he turned and walked slowly down the road. But there is a riddle here. There is, there is this grace, sanctification sort of thing uh, working here. Because salvation in some way is, is a riddle. We, we come to Christ by a gift. And yet, it still is important that we walk the road. Now, we don't walk it in a meritorious way. Right? We, we, don't, we don't walk up the road right, to earn our way into the city. Rather, we walk up the road because we have received a gift. And because that gift, it's called grace, has transformed our desires and empowered us, the transformation then works in our life, and that's when we walk up the city. That, that's the place of grace. That's the place of grace and sanctification. So look at, now at verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin... And it becomes slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And, and I trust you see the change there, right? In verse 20, Paul said that the Romans were slaves of sin, right? Slaves to their own lust, slaves to their own passions. But now in verse 22, Paul tells the Romans that they've been set free from sin. Now, being set free from sin doesn't mean they're no longer slaves. It means that their slavery has just been transferred. It's been transferred into slavery unto God. So here, here's a picture, right? I, I try to put this together, that this is where we all are, naturally. We are slaves of sin, and we live in that realm. But what does God do through Jesus Christ? We believe and trust we are set free. But it's not that we're set free like from sin, and we just kind of live then how we want. No, we're, we're set free then to be slaves of God. 
I think that's exactly what he says. Check me. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. Verse 20, we were slaves of sin. Verse 22, we've been set free from sin. And now we have been slaves of God. And really, that's what salvation is. It's a, it's a freeing us of our sin. It, but it, it's not a freeing us to do whatever it is that we want. It's a freeing of ourselves to submit ourselves as slaves of God. It, it's the imagery that Moses gave in Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6, where Moses said the slave had entered his seventh year of service. And, and I'm not sure it's on the sixth year or on the seventh year or where, wherever it is. Um, after six years, I think of what it is. On the seventh year, the slave can go free. Because it's more of a contract. That's what slavery was like oftentimes in the ancient world. More of a, a contract. I'll take care of you. You're housing, your food, and everything, and your family if you work for me. And so it was a little bit like I, I talked last time. It's a little bit like the military. We voluntarily give ourselves. We give up of ourselves for freedom because the military will take care of us. Though it tells us everything that we do. That's what a slave was. But when the seventh year was over, at the seventh year, he had an opportunity to be free. And there was a chance for the slave to say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free. And then the master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. His master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. Why? Because he says, I love my master. And, and so also is, is the picture here, is that we were slaves of sin, but now that we are set free and released, we say, no, I love my master. And I will voluntarily become a slave of God. And what's the fruit here that this yields? It yields eternal life. Isn't that what it says? Verse 22. Now you've been set free from sin, become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's what 23 is talking about. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But, but wait, what word did I kind of skip there in verse 22? Was it? Sanctification. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So, so sanctification is in here, right? So it's not just that, that you just get this gift of eternal life. No, sanctification is in there as well. It's, it's, it's this gift that you are, are given. Now, now notice also about the, the way this is, is phrased here. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The end of sanctification is eternal life. You know, sometimes people can get this idea, I've got to work for my sanctification, i got to work. Your sanctification is a gift. You say, no, 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 my sanctification is my effort. Well, yes, it is your effort, but it is God working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. But, but some people want to, want to hold on to that. And I just say, no, so your sanctification isn't even is a gift of God just as much as your eternal life. Because... It's the fruit that you get leads to eternal life. And it's not... Here's an illustration, okay? Sometimes people get these travel brochures, I've got them, or get these phone calls that says, oh, you've got a free cruise, right? And uh, it takes off, and, and where's the cruise take off from? It takes off from southern Florida. I just got to get to southern Florida. Now, is that a free cruise? <laughs> I got to get to Florida. A free cruise would be this, is that we've got an all-expense-paid trip for you. we got your airfare and we got your cruise all set up. But some people think that the sanctification is this process of getting the airplane to Florida so you can get on the cruise. But it's not. It's all a gift of God. That's what the 22 is talking about. You've been set free from sin. 
The fruit that you get leads to sanctification to end eternal life. And, and that's why that imagery is so, so helpful, right? It's because when God saves us, he doesn't save us to do as we please. He saves us, works in us. We become slaves of God. He works in us. Grace empowers us. God gives us a transformed heart to then walk in his ways. Isn't that what he talked about in verse 17? Thanks be to God that you who once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, right? God works a change in our heart, Ezekiel 36, 22 and, and following, right? He gives a new heart, gives a heart of flesh, gives us a soft heart rather than a, a stony heart. And that's what we want to do, right? Because it's been a, a passion for us. Um, just think about, I uh, had a chance to speak with someone in the neighborhood here at the church this week. Just about my process of becoming a, a pastor and uh, how his, his son is in IT work. And I said, that's what I was in before I, I became a pastor and, uh, you know, just kind of talk to him about the willing move and transition from a, a life of, a, of IT into a life of pastoring. He said, that world was a lot easier, right? Computers, you turn them off and turn them on, and they just start working magically. But people are not like that. It's a lot harder. It's a lot more difficult. And I said, but kind of the, the idea was just, just a passion of saying, that, that's on my heart. That's what I wanted to do, want to seek to do. And I, said, I talked to him about the church and, the, and, and how we and, and how a true follower of Christ is a change within and a desire to follow Jesus. And I think he was unpersuaded. You know, he's kind of one of these. I'm kind of working on him and talking to him. But I had a chance just to just share about Jesus and how he transforms and his empowering work in those who believe. To overcome some of those things, like his children who are dealing involved with addictions and, and drugs and losing custody of their children. And, you know, Jesus is a solution to that problem. I had a chance to tell him. You know, and I know others of you, right? Just even in prayer meeting, it was, was shared about how, no, we can't come today. We can come this afternoon, but church is a priority. Because that's, that's a heart. When your heart is right, that's where you're going to walk. You're going to walk in an upward walk of, of sanctification. You know, but, but there are some people who, who think that, oh, we're saved. It's a free gift. There's nothing we do. Now, there's nothing we do to earn. But, but if God has transformed you, you're going to do something. You're, you're going to change. And, and that's, that's a story about Bill here. Okay, obviously, I just pulled the internet from, I have no idea what his name really is. So, But we'll call him Bill, for argument's sake and for kids to <clears throat> keep him up on that. So he's arguing with evangelists about whether there's anything that people do, whatever, after they're saved. Whether Jesus needs to be Lord. It's called the Lordship Controversy. Maybe you heard that before. Whether you submit to Jesus as Lord or whether he can just be your Savior. Maybe then later be your Lord. And, and so that's the debate. And so here's what he says. He says, the debate, is, the debate is not over whether Christians can sin. Rather, the debate is over whether a Christian can sin without being disciplined by his father. When someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit makes that person into a new creation and loving discipline begins. For true Christians, the discipline begins immediately, meaning, of course, that there's immediate change in lifestyle. And there's no change, no evidence of discipline, and there's no salvation. No holiness, no heaven. Lack of holiness is evidence the Holy Spirit is not present. For when he's present, he leads us in putting to death the misdeeds of the body. So that's kind of the idea. And even you see, right? No, no sanctification, no heaven. No holiness, no heaven, right? It's because right, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and the end of sanctification is, is eternal life. But surely, Bill argued... You agree that there are many Christians who agree with what I'm saying. That's correct. 
They agree with what you say, but they're not traveling in the same direction you are. What do you mean by that? See, Christianity is full of teachers who are much better than their theology. They agree with you verbally, but their lives do not reflect it. They do not live the way they teach. Still, Jesus said, and this is kind of reverse, right? They're saying, oh, you can live whatever you want, but these are genuine believers who walk in the right way. Still, Jesus said that men like that should be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. I feel part of the reason is that those who listen to them are not always so fortunate as they are. Well, how do you make the distinction? By the direction they travel. If they are traveling to the city, I count them my brother regardless of their destructive theology. But if they're traveling toward the abyss, it's a different story. Here Evangelist pointed down the road in the direction Bill was traveling. The point was not lost on him. So you're saying, I'm not a Christian? Bill looked both up angry and upset. By the way, I've had conversations like that before talking about fruit in someone's life, someone professes to be a Christian, and start putting your finger on there, and, and it comes to this conclusion. It's very hot sometimes, upset, angry. Jesus said that we were to judge on the basis of fruit. That fruit does not include decisions or professions or prayers or walking out and so forth. To rely on such things, men can do them on their own, is to base salvation on works, extremely paltry works, I might add. You say they must be fruit. What do you call fruit? Love and righteousness and joy and kindness. So you're saying in order to be saved, a person must work at cultivating his virtue? No. I'm saying that when God saves a person, <clears throat> he always begins to produce such fruit in a person's life. The Christian works out his salvation because God is at work in him. You're putting people back under the law. And the Bible says we're not under law, but we're under grace. Ding, 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 ding. Romans 6, we'll get to that, right? But again, what does that passage say in the same breath? Bill was glowering now. I don't know. What does it say? It says that sin shall not be your master. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. Your position represents grace as freedom to sin, allowing sin to be Lord, which it must be if Jesus is not Lord. The Bible represents grace as giving freedom from sin. You're saying that grace is not a free gift after all? Not, not at all. The question is not whether grace is a gift. The question concerns how big the gift is. I'm saying that the gift is immense and that it includes the righteousness of God's people. Bill turned to go. He was very unhappy. And Evangelist stopped with one last comment. Consider what you want. You want to arrive at last the city, but you don't want to walk in that direction? Now, how can that be? Bill turned away. And it was clear it was not at all sure. I trust you are sure and that you understand what he's, what he's talking about. It. He referred, look, look back at verse 15. This is the passage which evangelist talked about. And really, by the way, I'm ending here because this is really the governing thought of our whole text today. I mean, we could have started there, but I, I chose, let, let's, let's get around back to it. I told you last week there were really two big questions in Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no, you're united with Christ. You can't sin. It doesn't make any sense anymore for you to sin. A similar question comes in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And what does Paul says? He says, by no means. And by the way, next week we're going to get into the law when he finally begins to start talking about the law in chapter 7. Uh, verse 1. But I want you to keep this picture that was there in mind. So I'm not sure exactly what happened to that. But the picture of being slaves to sin and being set free 
and now becoming slaves of God. See, see, that's why verse 15 is, is there, right? Is it, is it, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? No, we're not under sin anymore. We're under grace. Now we are slaves of God. That doesn't mean you live whichever way you please, but it means that you live in accordance to his ways. And by the way, the sanctification, the salvation gift is so immense that he will give you the sanctification. He will empower you, right? It's the fruit of the spirit. See, it's the spirit that works in us to empower us to walk this path of life. And so really the the question comes to you today. Are, Are you walking downward to the abyss? Or are you walking upward to the city? This path of life. Uh, I I trust that's where you are. Kids, parents, uncles, grandparents, wherever. Walk upward this path of life to the city. Because because Christ has transformed you and you're free from sin. But you're a, a slave to God. And next week we'll get to see and talk about the law. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for all of us. Oh, God, may we not play games. God, by by theological trickery or by pretending or feigning obedience. As evangelist said, you want to arrive at last at the city, but you don't want to walk in that direction. How can that be? Oh God, I would pray that you'd put into our heart um, sanctifying desires, that desire, oh God, to walk towards the city. God, because you have transformed us. And and if those desires aren't there uh, among any of us, God, I pray that you would convict of sin. It is, John 16, the Spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Father, so I pray the Spirit would come and convict and turn hearts around. That we might not just be playing games here at Rock Valley Bible Church, but we might genuinely know which path we're on and might cultivate those hearts and those passions in our desires and our flesh, God, that pursues after you. And strengthen us, O oh God. I pray even as we get to Romans 7, talk about the battle. And it is a battle, God, because we are in the flesh. God, by your grace, I pray that you would help us have victory over the flesh, have victory over those passions, that we would walk in a way that's pleasing in your sight, that we would all arrive one day at that city. God, when you say, well done, well done, good and faithful one. That's what we long for, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.